So every year there are specific dates in the calendar that stick out historically more than others. In 2020, it's March 12th. The National Basketball Association, the league, just announcing that it's going to suspend the remainder of its games following tonight's games as a precaution as the U.S. tries to minimize the spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus. The NBA announces that it was suspending their season until further notice due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The league will use this hiatus to determine the next steps in dealing with the pandemic. Not long after that, the NHL followed suit. The NCAA even canceled their March Madness tournament. Formula One, they as well delayed the start of their season, as did IndyCar. Major League Baseball canceled as well the remainder of spring training and then delayed opening day. The PGA Championship postponed. Wimbledon canceled. All major soccer leagues, they were all put on pause. And the list goes on and on and on. Numerous delays, cancellations, and postponements. Lots of money lost. This is uncharted territory for many of these sports leagues and events, but it's also very much an unknown for all of us, as our lives have been halted. As sports fans, our release has always been the big game tomorrow night, or this weekend's derby, or next month's tournament. But that doesn't seem to matter anymore, not at all because something bigger is happening all around us. The spread of COVID-19 has had a tremendous effect on all of us and the sports we love. This podcast will hopefully answer some of your questions regarding the coronavirus and what impact it's had on the sports world. I'm Richard Deitch. And I'm Donovan Bennett. And this is the Sports on Pause podcast. 100 days after China reported a new pneumonia of unknown cause in the city of Wuhan, the number of confirmed cases globally has reached one and a half million with more than 90,000 deaths. More than 14,500 Americans have died. 1,916 of them have died in the last day, which means one American is dying on average every 45 seconds from coronavirus. The Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, has this morning declared a state of emergency. The Prime Minister has used his Easter message to urge Australians not to gather with family and friends over the long weekend. Police are out in force, issuing fines to anyone breaching rules. There is a once-in-a-lifetime disaster preparedness effort being undertaken across the country right now. We have never before in modern life experienced the kind of social and economic disruption that is about to happen or is already happening in and around our communities from coast to coast. And before, Richard, we even get into the topic at hand, I think it's first and foremost to thank our healthcare professionals, first responders, essential workers, from those working in grocery stores to pharmacies, those working in construction, those people who are allowing us to continue to do things that are less important and stay safe from a daily basis. But this topic, this issue, it's one that has fascinated me from the outset because it was going to impact me and my career, but because it's impacting so many people around me. And it's odd, and I'm interested in your perspective. The reason why I really wanted to do this podcast, other than to give the people that I just mentioned maybe something to consume and a bit of a release, is because this is a topic where there are so many facts that are important. There has been so much misinformation, which is dangerous, 
But there's also so much that we still don't even really know. And all of that is tied to sports. So I figured sports would be a great platform to explore those things. Well, first on, that's well said in terms of um, all the people who are making, you know, making our lives continue, even as so many of us are sheltered at home or self-quarantined. And you mentioned all the medical people and the grocers and police officers and firefighters. You can't say enough about the people who sort of help life at the moment, but you know, those of us who work in the sports field, those of us who are sports fans, we are all impacted by this. Me and you are impacted by this professionally. And sports fans at large are just impacted by the fact that they don't have their games. They don't have the escapism. They don't have what's always become a signature part of their lives. And probably one of the rare things left that is communal, that actually brings people together, you know, no matter their race, no matter their economic status, no matter their age at times as well. And you can't tell the story, I think, of the coronavirus without telling the story of the nexus of the coronavirus in sports. Sports is a $6 billion business. It has essentially been shut down globally. And that in itself creates so many questions about what does that mean and what will it mean heading forward when all these uh, leagues attempt to come back? I think that's a great point, Richard. The origin, the issue, remember three months ago, most sports fans had never heard of coronavirus, never mind COVID-19. And obviously we now know it's a respiratory disease and people are you know, stockpiling tissue paper and things like that when really we need to just worry about shutting everything down. And so I wanted to maybe get the expertise of someone who can provide some calm in this sense of panic and give some real information because you know broadcasters fans athletes alike have been panicked about how long those games would be shut down for and what they'll look like when they return so let's talk to someone who can speak to both the unknown enemy that we're facing and what sports will look like once it's defeated and who better to talk to than Dr. Andrew Morris, who is a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and the medical director of the Sinai Health System. But on this topic specifically, he's got great expertise. He's been on the expert advisor group on this subject for the government of Canada since 2015. And he joins us on the Sports on Pause podcast right now. So, Dr. Morris, we want to talk about the intersection between COVID-19 and sports. But first, let's just put this into layman's terms so people really understand what we're dealing with and, and why we are dealing with it the way we are. And people have wrongly made the connection to the flu and the fact that we don't stop everything in quarantine for the flu because the variability, it's going to come down in March and April. Granted, we obviously have a vaccine for the flu. But what makes this virus so different and so challenging for us as humans? You know, I think there are some reasonable parallels with the flu. Uh, you've outlined some of the differences. Probably the most important difference is the immunity that people have to influenza because it passes through all communities seasonally and because of the vaccine. So those two things at least have some protective effect. And because it is seasonal, we do see it eventually wane. For this disease, there is no immunity. There's no one on the planet other than people who have recovered from the disease. 
who have any immunity to this whatsoever. And I think that's the biggest difference is that every single person is vulnerable to being infected. Dr. Morris, as uh, best as you can for lay people, can you explain what this virus does to the body? Well, it's not too different from any other severe viral infection in that it enters. It usually enters through uh, the eyes, nose, or mouth, and then through the mouth to the airways. And from there, it will travel to where it seems it likes to go, which is not only in the blood, but to the lungs. And then it causes a pneumonia. Uh, That's the main and initial thing that happens. And over time, what happens, depending on the person, is it can totally turn your immune system on overdrive, which is a bad thing. And on top of that, it can severely affect and then severely inflame the lungs. And so those two things in particular make it really hard for not only doctors and nurses and pharmacists to be taking care of them because when the immune system is uh, on overdrive, it's really hard to simmer it down. But because the lungs are so severely infected, patients really can't get enough oxygen by normally breathing. So we have to put them on a ventilator, breathing machine. And usually in this situation, and I won't go into the details why, but it's best to put patients uh, on their tummy while they're on a breathing machine. So I've heard league commissioners talking about monitoring how well we're doing and modeling uh, what's happened in other countries in terms of a return to play. When we're not testing everyone, how do we know how well we are or are not doing? Well, the trite answer is we don't. And I think you can see if you're uh, looking at the U.S., all you have to do is look at those numbers that are rising to recognize that it's way worse than those numbers are showing because the testing is so far behind. And even I think the death numbers are probably behind. In Canada, we're also behind. I think we know from the hospital numbers, the hospital experience myself, I can tell you at my hospital, we're not overwhelmed yet, but we know we're probably uh, days to a week and a half away from being totally slammed. Doctor, I think one of the things that's important to have uh, guests like you is to sort of clear up some misinformation. And there's no doubt that there will be young people, and when I define young people, let's say sort of those under 30, who believe that if they go out in very small groups and uh, let's say play pickup basketball with each other or some other sport, that they'll be fine, that they won't be able to get this virus. Can you give some insight into those who who want to compete right now in participatory sports even with numbers under 10 or 5. So thanks for that. And, you know, I'm one of those people, well, I'm not the young people, but I am one of those people who still want to play. And I know my regular pickup gig, we've been uh, sending videos of each other playing horse because that's about the best that we can do. The virus is passed on from contact primarily. That's the main way that it's passed on. It's through contact. And most people who are infected probably don't even know that they're infected. We don't normally think of, um, for viruses, people being carriers. Um, We think of that with uh, other germs. But in this situation, I think it's best to think of people as being carriers. And 
the close contact, the shared contact and uh, sharing surfaces increases your risk, not only of passing it on to somebody who may not be infected, but then you're going to, you have a chance of passing it on to every single person who they're going to become in contact with. I'm going to be really clear that if every single person in the country were in isolation for the next, I'm going to say three weeks, this would be over. Like it would totally be over. The only reason we are going to continue to have cases over the next probably six to 12 weeks and longer is because people won't stay home. They won't stay away from other people. And I can't be any more clear about that. And the the reason the reason why it's so important is because deaths rise when the healthcare system collapses. That's what we've seen everywhere around the world, that the deaths rise when the healthcare system collapses. And the healthcare system collapses because there's ongoing transmission. What we are all scared about, before I got on this uh, call, I was in a virtual meeting with my colleagues, and we were all focused on one thing, which is what are we going to do when the onslaught arrives? Because we know it's going to come, and we've seen it elsewhere, and all we're asking people to do is to minimize that onslaught by staying away from each other. I have lots of basketball questions and sports questions, but after hearing that, my next question is an emotional one. When you see scenes of people on the beach at spring break getting together, and you also know that the people who are most at risk are your colleagues, how does that make you feel? I'm frustrated by it. Um, it's not totally their fault, by the way. And it's not their fault because I think we have failed to educate and I think that there's been, at various stages, depending on uh, where you are in the world, uh, lack of leadership on this. And so when people are messaging that it's a hoax or it's going to go away, and when there are experts like myself and others who have been saying this is the real deal and we need to pay attention to this and we need to do something about it, it's hard uh, to recognize or to blame people um, for listening to the authoritative voices. I think bringing in the, in the basketball story, you know, there's a tight relationship between basketball and infectious diseases. It's not just me who has that relationship, but, you know, back when HIV was uh, going through the world and really causing tremendous loss of life everywhere, but was especially targeting uh, gay men. The story changed entirely um, with Magic Johnson uh, coming out that he tested positive for HIV and likely acquired it through unprotected uh, sexual contact uh, with a, a woman. And in this situation with COVID, the NBA absolutely changed the conversation when uh, they halted activities. Uh, I don't think anyone, uh, especially in the U.S., was taking this very seriously. And then as soon as they made that announcement, everything changed. If you were advising a professional sports league 
and that professional sports league was interested in an honest assessment of an all clear or sort of a, you know, we can start the season again. What has to happen, not just in the individual markets of these teams, but what has to happen almost globally for sports to start up again, where everybody from the athletes and those who are watching the games in person can be safe? I actually don't think it's any different from sports from uh, the general public, to be honest with you. A while ago, I told some of your peers that the season's over. And, you know, they sort of looked at me and thought I was kidding. Uh, But the season is over. And, you know, there's a reasonable chance that there will be, if not a delay in the season, uh, let's say for the NBA, that'll also for the following season uh, might end up having to be canceled altogether. We have no idea the trajectory of this disease, um, what it's going to be like. So if you look at places that got hit earlier than North America, like China and South Korea, uh, they still have cases uh, in their communities. And I don't think we will be back to normal until we no longer have cases in our communities or we have a vaccine that will prove protective and then will accelerate getting it out of our communities because you can't have a sports league when you've got players uh, competing who may be infected and because our diagnostic testing isn't perfect at the moment and maybe that will change also but it's going to be very hard to get players willing to compete with each other unless their assurance is that they're not going to become infected and the rest of the team staff are the ones who are going to be most concerned because they've also got families that they're going to go home to. They also have other loved ones who may be vulnerable. And even though there's a reasonable likelihood that if an athlete gets it, they're going to be just fine and may not even have symptoms, they still may be at risk of uh, spreading it to somebody else. Well, the Chinese Basketball Association was trying to play until the local government shut that down because of their fear of people who were asymptomatic. But they were trying to have a league with 20 teams in two different cities, all the players checked beforehand, all the players quarantined. Would a scenario like that work? It's been floated in terms of a potential situation you could see in the NBA and NFL when return to play happens. Would that actually be effective if something like that were to happen? I guess in theory, if you had everyone else locked up and then you said, okay, on on top of locking them up for weeks and testing them would allow them to compete. I guess in theory, that's a a possibility, but a practicality, I don't see it. And I don't see it because players are people and they're human. Uh, I know sometimes we don't think of them that way, but they are. And with what we're seeing right now, and, and these are actually, relatively speaking, we're giving people a fair amount of uh, liberal leeway to continue to go on with a decent part of their life, even though much of our lives have been halted. But in that scenario, they're largely going to be prisoners. And I just don't see that happening. There's a moral debate going on that I'm not sure where I stand. And so I'd love your perspective. And that's test kits for athletes. We've seen many athletes tested and tested positive, entire teams and organizations tested, some getting test kits via private means. But at the same time, we don't have enough tests for healthcare workers, first responders, people who are the most vulnerable. 
those resources and assets, do you feel like there's an issue with people in sports or celebrities getting uh, those test kits? You know, unfortunately, uh, whether we like it or not, the world isn't equitable. And if we're going to look at the morality of access to almost anything that professional athletes and other celebrities have, you know, we're going to be here for weeks uh, discussing the inequities. So that's a minor part of the problem. And it's probably not worth engaging too much in the in the morality of that, because they're probably not even using that many tests. The number of tests that we need are in the order of billions of tests globally that we need. We're not even talking millions or tens of millions. We're talking in the order of billions. And so if we're talking about a few thousand uh, tests by athletes, that really shouldn't be the issue. I think what we need to be focused on is being able to scale up the supply of tests, the ability to deliver those tests, and then the ability to report and collate those results so that we can understand them uh, in a timely manner. You know, I was, I've been holding back on it, but it is, there's an absurdity around the data, right? So any NBA team has more analytics information and capability than many of the countries and uh, states and provinces that are involved in this. So, you know, we are dealing with imperfect information. In Canada, the analogy that I give is we're in a situation right now where we've actually just emerged out of the first round and we're done pretty well and we're preparing for the second round. The problem is that we're only going to find out who we're playing just before tip-off. And... That's unacceptable, right? No NBA team would tolerate that, right? There's no way that any coaching staff, they would have the game film, that have the stats on each player, that know the trends, that know everything. We have no idea. We don't know the numbers of patients we're going to have. We don't know where they're going to pop up. That data is not in our hands. And our analysts, my colleagues who are trying to crunch the numbers, they don't have access to it. Right. So this is a huge, huge problem. Why is that? Five years ago, Bill Gates gave a chilling warning that the dangers of a global pandemic are real and on the way. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. Now, part of the reason for this is that we've invested a huge amount in nuclear deterrence. But we've actually invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. We're not ready for the next epidemic. So how do we find ourselves in that spot? So I can tell you personally that over the past number of years, I've approached several sports teams about drug-resistant infections and the importance of being prepared. And uh, largely it was, yeah, well, thank you very much. I do know that the NFL has an arrangement with uh, some of my colleagues in a prominent U.S. university who supplies them with protocols and everything they need for infectious disease prevention and then management. Governments, you know, it's not sexy. And even though we knew, like there are projections, we've all talked about this, they've all had reports 
but unfortunately, it's not real. And even bankers have created reports on this, right? So there have been so many reports over time. It's not just Bill Gates. There have been many people who have pointed out that this is coming. But people don't act unless there's emotion tied with it. And for pandemics before they arrive, there's no emotional tie to it. Now, just so, to give you some idea, I'm an infectious disease doctor. For the first 25 years of my career, everyone thought that I'm treating like tropical and parasitic infections. It's only like the last two months that people have a clue the kind of things that I deal with. Why? Because nobody cares. It doesn't affect them, right? And, you know, when was the last time that you heard anyone raise any kind of money for influenza, for vaccines or anything like that? You haven't heard that. Nobody's done that. Nobody cares. Nobody's cared. Nobody cares. They only care now because it's affecting their livelihood and they're seeing people dying in front of their eyes on TV. But, uh, you know, this is the fault of, uh, of leadership globally in getting people to care about this. And, you know, I hope it doesn't happen again because we are going to have, there will be another coronavirus or another virus that's going to be causing uh, or a, a threatening to cause a pandemic sometime in, within the next 10 years. That's for sure. Doctor, let's end with this and something that's uh, service-oriented more than anything else. For those who are going to be listening to this podcast, what would you advise them on best practices right now? So I think number one best practice is stay at home unless you absolutely have to uh, go out. And if you have to go out, then uh, minimize uh, where you're going out to and ensuring that you're just doing your bare essentials. That's number one. Number two is to be obsessive with washing your hands. Assume that every surface that you are touching has feces on it. So treat it like that. So if you were touching feces almost anywhere, you'd wash your hands immediately. You definitely wouldn't put your hands in your mouth or your eyes or anything after doing that. It should be the same thing here, right? You shouldn't be touching anything without uh, washing or and or making sure that the surfaces that you are touching, including those in your home, are absolutely clean. If you follow those two things alone, you're going to be pretty good. Where it always falls down in the delivery is when People think that they can outsmart the germs and they do those things like you suggested of, well, you know, I know my buddy's been really good and he stayed at home and uh, and hasn't been in contact with anyone. And same with my other friend, they haven't. So I think the three of us, we could play like Americans, let's go play. And that's when it breaks down because you're relying on the fidelity of everyone else playing uh, by the same rules. And we just can't afford that. We absolutely can't afford that. So we need everyone to just stay home. Dr. Andrew Morris, we thank you for your time and insight, and we wish you to stay safe. Thanks again. My pleasure. Likewise. Well, we really appreciate Dr. Morris um, educating us and listeners on this topic. And one of the things, Donovan, that really, really struck me was his projection that there is a reasonable chance that not only will the NBA season be delayed and postponed this year, but that the following year, 2021, might have to be canceled altogether as well. These are foreboding statements from a man who studies this full time. And what it does for me is it once again strikes me that in the 
rush to get sports back, which is something all of us want, I really hope that all the medical professionals who talk to leagues and sports and teams are in unison here because that um, that from Dr. Morris Donovan really, really stood out to me. It made me think, wow, maybe we're only in the, you know, to use a cliche, only in the first inning here as opposed to the fifth inning. Yeah, and it flies in the face on some other things we're seeing with wrestling events continuing and Dana White trying to have Fight Island and have events continuing. And you just need to look at the calendar. If that's the case for basketball, well, what does that mean for college football? What does that mean for the NFL, who we've always thought would have the benefit of time to get this right, and they haven't changed their league year whatsoever? Certainly, certainly a sobering uh, projection in terms of when we might get sports back. IndyCar has also been postponed, and, and that's until August, and based on what we just heard, that is in jeopardy as well. But that doesn't mean racing isn't happening this spring. NASCAR's inaugural iRacing event attracted over 900,000 viewers, which makes it the most watched televised esports event ever. Uh, but the Indy circuit isn't backing down. They've got IndyCar iRacing Challenge, a virtual racing event, and it's allowed... Robert Wickens to get back in competition for the first time since his catastrophic injury. But there's actually another Canadian racer who really thinks this might be the next big thing in the sport. James Hinchcliffe is a Canadian race driver, best known for competing on IndyCar series. In 2011, he was the NTT IndyCar series rookie of the year. Well, he's a rookie of a different sort now, iRacing for the first time. What's the difference between virtual racing and the real thing for actual drivers and how will the sport of racing be different post-pandemic? We're asking James Hinchcliffe. He's our guest on the Sports on Pause podcast. Before we get into the iRacing, what has the social distancing measures we are all under done to your actual racing career and how do you get ready to once again race at some point when you're at home right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely a weird time, I think, for everybody in the sports world. And, you know, obviously all, all races are on hold right now. And so the way we're really approaching it is, is just kind of an extended off season, you know, rather than uh, heading to the first race, which we tried to do, you know, the second weekend in March there, we've just kind of pretended like we're back to January 1st, you know, and we're in the last few months of preseason training and kind of had to switch back to a, a preseason training regiment rather than an in-season training regiment and just trying to, you know, keep ourselves fit and ready to go. So as soon as we get the word, we can go back racing. James, uh, sort of in layperson's terms as best you can, what is IndyCar iRacing? So what's so unique about motorsports is uh, iRacing is a, is a software platform that was developed years and years ago that has spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to replicate as accurately as possible the driving experience for really anybody to experience themselves at home. Uh, they've mapped every racetrack you can think of. They have done complete, you know, dynamic physics models on all the different types of race cars from Indy cars, NASCARs, rally cars, Formula One cars, I mean, vintage cars, all sorts of stuff. And it's an online community, really, where you can go and, and race against people all over the world. And, you know, while it very much started as, you know, a, a sort of fun recreational thing, it quickly became a training tool for a lot of drivers, a way to stay sharp, because 
you know, one of the things about racing is we don't get to just practice six days a week, like other sports, you know, we're very limited in how much we get to actually drive the car. And so in a virtual sense, we could do it through iRacing kind of whenever we wanted. And, and it's not a hundred percent the same, but it's enough to keep your brain sharp. And, uh, and definitely learning new racetracks is a, a huge benefit on that thing. And so now with everybody kind of stuck at home, uh, IndyCar has, has started an iRacing challenge where we're going to IndyCar tracks. We have most of the of the actual IndyCar drivers signed up, and everyone's got their rigs at homes, and we all uh, we all log into the same race that IndyCar hosts, and uh, it's being broadcast on television. And you know, it's uh, it's kind of a real deal, you know, and it's it's cool because we're kind of replicating a real race in a way that you couldn't do with say hockey or basketball, you know, you couldn't give a bunch of Leafs players NHL 2020 and broadcast them playing in. It wouldn't quite be the same and quite as close to real life as what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I'm playing Tiger Woods golf that I really have killed the 17 at TPC Sawgrass or T all of the first at Augusta. <laughs> but I know that in actuality, I could never ever hit approach shots like that. For you, what are, what are the skills that actually transfer to playing iRacing and what are the things that are just vastly different? So honestly, a lot of the fundamentals of driving a race car quick around a racetrack very much apply. You know, they spend a lot of time on the on the physics behind the game. And so, you know, the techniques you use with things like when and how you apply the brake pressure, when and how you apply the throttle, the racing lines, change of direction, all of those things are very accurate. So, you know, a, an accomplished driver that's never played iRacing before could jump on and be, you know, 90 to 95% up to pace just based on their real life experience. It's that close. The last 5%, though, that's where things go a little bit awry and they're not quite the same as, as real life. In iRacing, just because of the nature of it, you know, being a software and not a real race car, there are things you can get away with in the game that you can't in real life. And so the really good sim racers are the ones that have put the hours in, done the trial and error, and found those little kind of tricks and tips to find that last little bit of lap time. So it is very, very accurate for the most part, but there's, there is that last little bit that, you know, lets you get away with things that you really couldn't do in an indie car. James, one of the things that I've read between um, IndyCar as well as NASCAR are the drivers that have the advantage a lot of times are the younger drivers because they have more experience uh, just gaming and sort of more experience with sim racing. Do you agree with that uh, thesis? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think I think the guys that have spent time uh, racing a lot in uh, in the sim world have an advantage, whether they're old or young. Uh, certainly there are more young guys that have gotten into it just, you know, by nature of how things work. But uh, some of the older drivers, guys like Will Power in the IndyCar series, he's been involved in iRacing for a long time, over a decade. In NASCAR, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Denny Hamlin are big iRacers, you know, and they came first and second in the first e-NASCAR race, you know, and they're both, uh, and they're kind of like late 30s, early 40s. So it really just comes down to the experience that you've had in the, in the sim world. All sports are trying to navigate these uncharted waters to figure out how they keep their fans engaged during this pause. Something like iRacing, is it a tool to placate the traditional audience or is it to grow a new audience in racing? Honestly, that's a great question. I think the answer is both. You know, I, I think off the bat, what you're going to get is certainly the uh, the existing audience kind of you know feeding their need a little bit and, and scratching their itch but 
you know, gaming and, and certainly tapping into, you know, YouTube and services like Twitch, they're obviously huge in their own right and opening up the Twitch community to a flurry of racing content will hopefully, you know, get some young followers and, and some gaming followers that might not have been racing fans necessarily before interested in what we're doing. And then the kind of third tier, I think, is actually just sports fans in general. So if you're a fan of any other sport and you're just craving some live sport, like we don't want to watch replays from you know the 2017 season of whatever sport anymore. People want to see something live now. And we're really the only sport that can do it quite like that. And so, you know, you might get the casual football, baseball, hockey, basketball fan that's just craving to see some live competition tuning in and inadvertently making some new fans out of people like that as well. James, as an active athlete in a global sport, what do you personally need to feel safe to return to active competition, whether that's a race in the United States, whether that's a race in Canada, or whether that's a race in a country abroad? Again, that's a very good question. And I think I'm in a position where I'm just going to defer to the experts. There's so much information out there. There's also so much misinformation out there that it's really easy to kind of go down the rabbit hole and and try and research your way into a, a clever position on the whole thing. But ultimately, there are people way smarter than me with way more knowledge about what's happening. And I think we just have to listen to what everybody's telling us to do, which for the time being is, you know, social distancing and, and following all the rules that the CDC has set out. And then once the the professionals say that, yeah, it's, it's time to get back to work and it's time to get back to sport, then I'm comfortable with that. You know, if that means that some sports, ours included, starts back with just necessary personnel and no fans, so be it. You know, that's obviously uh, not ideal to not have fans on the property. But at the same time, if we can put some entertainment out there for people to watch at home, you know, we're, we're in the entertainment business at the end of the day. So, uh, yeah, for me, as soon as someone official tells me it's good, I'm ready to go. Unlike some of the team sports, this in a way is a three-way relationship because you have the drivers, you obviously have the league organizers and the events, but you also have sponsors. What are your sponsors saying and what has that conversation been like? That is such a unique situation. You know, obviously we're a sport that is fueled by sponsorship and in light of having no actual races happening, how do those conversations go? You know, luckily for me, and and I think it's been sort of a broad across the IndyCar paddock, uh, all the partners have been very understanding. My partner in, in Genesis is actually, a, it's, it's a tech company. They kind of love the fact that we've deferred to simulation racing and, and sort of a, you know, a, a techie sort of um, solution to this temporary situation. And, you know, as we're learning more about this world, you know, we're exploring and finding more and more ways to get them some of the coverage and and some of the ROI that they would have been looking for in a real race event anyway. So it's actually created some interesting conversations about, you know, maybe this is even something that continues in the future. Because like I said, you know, we don't get to practice the way a lot of other athletes do. We have a fairly lengthy off season. So, you know, maybe there's something in the future where sponsorship actually continues throughout the full year and we run kind of a, a winter e-racing league, you know, with everybody streaming on their on their webcams and through all the different social channels. There's still branding opportunities to be had. And we're really just trying to make the best of it. And the sponsors have been very understanding up to this point. James, how would you uh, assess the levels of information that you're receiving from IndyCar officials or those who run the sport or are charged with giving the drivers and teams updated information on where things stand? 
Honestly, the communication with IndyCar has been very, very good. You know, we've, we're one of the few organizations that's already sort of put out some schedule in terms of what we're aiming to do. I think we know, we all accept that it's a fluid situation and, and changes might be coming, but IndyCar wanted to be very transparent about where we're at today and what the backup plan is if it gets pushed a week, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, because all those plans are in place. And, and I think IndyCar wanted everybody to know that. So they shared that internally with uh, with the teams and drivers, but they've also been pretty public about sharing some of that information. So I think the approach has been been very good. Well, James, my mom said playing sports video games would lead to nothing good. Evidently, she was wrong when she told me I need to go outside and actually play sports. Uh, thankfully, your ability <laughs> to play video games and be a gamer uh, is some nice distraction for all of us during this tough time i hope you're on the track soon but for now we'll settle for you on the indycar iRacing challenge virtual tour thank you so much for your perspective of course thanks for having me on guys take care and thank you once again to james hinchcliffe he's a great follow follow him at at hinchtown he will be posting about his whereabouts in the off season it is nice make good that he can make some money for himself and his sponsors while racing is away and as he mentioned maybe moving forward this will be another supplemental piece of income for drivers when they're not on the actual track i don't see this being the same for basketball players playing the nba 2k tournament not as thrilling but this is where we are richard we are trying to be creative and finding ways for leagues to still be relevant while we are in this murky middle between suspended and outright cancellations again echo donovan's thoughts we appreciate james hinchcliffe for his time one of the things we want to do to end this podcast and we want to end it on a bit of a service note is to mention two or three things that we're reading or we've heard or we're following that can help you in terms of your own education in dealing with COVID 19 and dealing with the coronavirus and the two i will mention in our first episode here are one the johns hopkins coronavirus resource center which i would maintain is probably your best resource for global news on this pandemic and that is www.coronavirus.jhu.edu and then donald g mcneil is a new york times writer and reporter who is an expert on pandemics and has covered pandemics for a couple of decades now. So head to your Google machine and type Donald G. McNeil into it. And if you want a reporter who has really been on the front lines of this, read what he is writing about the coronavirus and read what he is writing about the coronavirus in relation to other pandemics prior to this one. Those are great calls. I've got one tied to what our first guest, Dr. Morris, said, and it's a piece by Scott Stinson in the National Post. And basically, the title is, if governments want better public buy-in, then give us better data. And Morris mentioned the fact that sports teams have better analytics than we have fighting a global pandemic. And Scott really makes that case. So if you want to follow up on that thought line, that's a good article to read and research. If you want to follow up on this conversation, Please continue to like, favorite, subscribe, and share it. Uh, we'll be back with more information and news and guests on this very topic. And if you've got some guest ideas for us, be sure to let us know. Hit us up in the comments and on Twitter. Until then, stay safe, take care of yourself and others. <laughs>